Ag State of Mind, episode 137. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ag State of Mind podcast, a proud member of the Global Ag Network. I am your host, Jason Meadows. Today is a very special episode for me on the podcast. I know I say that a lot. I'm very fortunate in the fact that I feel like all these episodes are very special. So, uh, But today is no different because uh, I'm talking to someone who is an educator and advocate for something that is very close to my heart. And I'm talking to Amelia Minor-Cottle. Amelia reached out to me on my website and wanted to share with me some resources on Alzheimer and dementia diseases. She is an educator and advocate for that. Uh, she, It was something that was kind of born out of necessity for her in that her husband suffered from dementia. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, and but she continues her advocacy and education work in that. And we talked today about the work that she does and the need for it. And if you are longtime listeners of the podcast, I have kind of hinted it around about this a little bit. Um, I don't talk about it out in the open very much, but my father actually suffers from dementia, and it's a it's a big challenge for not only me, but for my entire family. So uh, having someone like Amelia, who really knows what I'm going through, um, and I'm sure other people growing through too, uh, this is, unfortunately, Alzheimer's and dementia is something that is all too common, and I know it affects uh, lots of people. I think in the podcast, we say it's one in six over the age of 65 and then as as the age increases that number increases so um, anyway we will get to that more in the podcast uh, before we get started though I would like to encourage you to go out and check our newsletter out uh, go to my website agstateofmind.com there you'll find the link to subscribe to our email list. That way you don't miss anything um, podcasts or otherwise related. So, all right, here we go with my episode with Amelia Cottle. Welcome to the Ag State of Mind podcast. Thank you for agreeing to join me and thank you for uh, the great work you're doing. And we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to my heart today, but uh, I would... Uh, if you if you wouldn't mind just kind of give your background and you know kind of what you do and we'll we'll take it from there okay i appreciate the opportunity i want to tell people that i read an article about you and your work in uh, the missouri farm bureau magazine and i i pulled it out i was like i've got to save this i got to get a hold of this guy this is great he he punches all the buttons he knows. And um, finally, I got around to calling you and, and man, you were right back on it. I loved it. You were right back there. Um, my background is I live in Columbia, Missouri, uh, out in the county, now, out near Rockbridge State Park. 
And uh, five years ago, my husband died from Alzheimer's disease. He was what we call younger onset. He was diagnosed at age 52, or he, I was 52, he was 53. We call it younger onset, meaning much younger than typical. One in six people over the age of 65 will have the beginnings and then further into a dementia disease. There are over a hundred out there, but um, that journey was a journey. Um, and uh, ever since he passed away, and as a matter of fact, before he passed away, he was always an advocate um, and a, an agitator. I want people to learn. I want people to know. But I pretty much devoted myself for the past five years to advocacy for caregivers. Um, you know, I always say when a person is diagnosed with a dementia disease, whichever one it is, there should be the indicate the note that there are two caregivers, there are two people diagnosed, the person with the disease and the caregiver. So I devote my time and work to caregivers because as you said in your article, Jason, I'm gonna quote you on this. You said, it's more, about, it's more than about you. Take care of yourself and you can take care of all of the other things in your life. So I tell caregivers, take care of you first and then you can take care of people in your life. So coming up on five years since my husband passed away, my son works, our son works full-time for the Alzheimer's Association as a walk manager and an advocate uh, too. I lost my dad to vascular dementia, which is another one a couple of years ago. And recently my brother-in-law was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and for him, it's a family disease. His father had it and his brother also has it. So the disease never leaves us. Once we're aware of it, it's always there. I would say, Jason, it's a lot like mental health. When you're aware of it, you're aware of mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, and I think if you dig down deep, there's, there's, I don't know really anybody who hasn't been affected by it in some capacity dementia, right? You know, hasn't had somebody in their, in their circle who didn't, who, who hasn't, it's very, it's very seldom you find somebody who doesn't have experience with it. True. I teach a class every semester. Actually, I do two lectures in a row um, for the school of health professions at MU. Mm -hmm. And, um, the question I always ask the students in the class, a big lecture room, 200 students, I say to them, please raise your hand if you know someone who has a dementia disease. And then please raise your hand if you have someone in your own personal life, grandpa, grandma, aunt, uncle, mom, dad, who has a dementia disease. And then raise your hand if you've lost someone. And the first time it happened, the professors were stunned. They couldn't believe that 18, 19, 20 year old students were already encountering this in their lives. And so every semester since then, because I do lecture every semester, I ask the same question and I have the same results every time. And the students are stunned too. They look around and go, wow, we had no idea the impact it has on our lives. I'm sure you could ask the same question about mental health. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, re 
that's what I get when I ask people that question. It's just amazing. So I'm going to, I want to back up here and okay. excuse my ignorance on this. Um, but I guess I've never really considered it. And um, you said you, your husband passed away due to, was it Alzheimer's or, or dementia? Yes. And I, Alzheimer's. okay. And I guess I've never really considered that as being a cause of death. Um, but tell me, like, if you don't mind, like, how did it affect him to where it took his li- finally took his life? Dementia is a symptom mm-hmm. like a cough. Okay. So if you have a cough, you could have asthma, bronchitis, pneumonia, COVID, you name whatever it sure. is. Okay. It's a symptom. So dementia is considered an umbrella term. There are over a hundred dementia diseases, including Huntington's, Lewy body disease, Parkinson's, dementia. The list is endless, but the end result all funnels down to it's a fatal, a terminal disease, whichever one it is. Mm. Now, a dementia disease itself may not cause death because as you get older, you have other medical problems. So you, you may die of a cardiac event. Sure, you may sure. have something else that happens. But truly, a dementia disease can kill you because it is slowly disintegrating, shrinking the brain and making it not do what it's supposed to do. The brain is our nerve center. It controls everything. In my husband's case, he was very healthy. He could have gone out and bucked bales, done any number of things, had his brain been able to tell his physical body what to do. But because his brain was disintegrating, actually and literally shrinking, it eventually took his mobility Mm -hmm. away. Once Mm -hmm. it took his mobility, it only took two weeks for him to die. And it just started shutting down the system. It's like watching your computer lose function. Oh, okay. It lost another function. It lost another function. And then you literally get the blue screen of death. Mm -hmm. And while a person may in the end stages of a dementia disease have pneumonia set in, it's because the body is not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not coughing. It's not clearing. It's not doing all of those things. So yes, Dementia diseases are terminal. They are fatal. Um, they're not always on the on the death certificates. And we made very, very sure that it was on his. And I tell everyone it needs to be on them because you can't track causes of death if they're not in the death certificate, which is then used for reference for so many things um, in our world. So... And you may not know this, but maybe as someone who is pretty well educated on the subject, um, what, where would you say the error in like the, how many, okay. How many people who actually die of a dementia disease actually get reported that way? Did that make sense? That question? You know, I'm just going to take a wild guess and say that 25 to 35 percent, because 
while it is dementia is not caused by aging, dementia diseases are more in the aged people. Right, right. I, I, whenever I teach that, I always have to say, I know that seems weird, but you don't have to have a dementia disease as you're getting older. But one in six people over the age of 65 will have a dementia disease. And then as it increases 65 to 75, that number gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's why we're trying to make sure that death certificates include that diagnosis. Um, because um, as we know from two years of pandemic and COVID, there are people who may have had cardiac issues, they may have had diabetes, whatever. And that was creating an, an, uh, a lesser physicalness, right. being not as healthy. Sure. Well, that's how COVID got people right because they were older they were less healthy that's so covid was on the death certificate but maybe cardiac disease okay. is what made okay them so weak. okay so this makes sense to me now um not not mm -hmm. that it didn't necessarily before but i never framed it but so let's say someone has a heart attack um they they're there, they would be. They would say that that person had coronary artery disease, but they wouldn't say that coronary, sure. coronary artery disease is what caused the death. the The myocardial infarction is what caused the death. Um, and yes. same with diabetes. I mean, there's a number of different things. No, nobody, you know, diabetes very seldom gets probably listed as a cause of death. Uh, it's usually some sort of infection, sepsis, something like that. And I, I, I kind of so. Um, even the, so dementia is the chronic stage, even though it may not necessarily cause be the, what happens or what like directly causes it. It's not the acute thing. It's the chronic thing to make it, a, to make kind of a simpler statement about it. And that absolutely makes sense. And that's why not to go down that rabbit hole, but we need to make sure that our death certificates really cover the things that contribute to the death, not just uh, he had a heart attack. Well, he had a heart attack because he had coronary artery disease. He also had diabetes type two, and he also had cirrhosis of the liver. But those three things might not get on the death certificate. But did they contribute? Abs Why? Sure, absolutely. they did. Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting thing because, um, you know, I don't know how much being a pharmacist, I, I, I don't know how much I've really understood dementia. Um, and then couple that to like, I have experience in that my father is suffering from dementia. And um, you know, so I, I, I'm naturally curious and naturally, not, not just naturally curious, but naturally need to know these things because these are things that are, I mean, directly affecting me on a number of different levels. And I think that they're affecting a number of different people too. I mean, I'm not just the only one. There are so many people who this affects. And I just, I just think that we are, uh, I don't think we are adequately prepared for something that is so common to so many of us. Right. And I, and you, you that is, yes. 
Absolutely. And we're not prepared for what I call, and we many people call, the um, epidemic of dementia disease because uh, the baby boomers, of which I was on the tail end, are aging so rapidly and um, at that rate. So then, then the rate of dementia is going up because they are getting older. They are over 65. You are seeing that. And it is increasingly expensive in the insurance world, the medical world, the need for care, the need for nursing homes, the need for people who work in care homes, the need for memory care. It is not only a responsibility to learn about it and know about it for individuals because we love our parents. It's also a responsibility as citizens to understand that this can and will bankrupt our medical care system in the next 15 to 20 years if we don't make changes as soon and as rapidly as possible. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are, you know, like you say, the baby boomers, there are this, you know, very large cohort of people who are reaching the age of where these diseases become more prevalent. And, and not only that, but our life expectancies are going up as well. So this, I feel like, is a whole host of new um, uncharted issues. And like you say, they, they need to be prepared for. And you know, we don't go into laws or policy or anything really on this podcast, but you know, it's something that needs to be, we really needs to be at the top of our minds and you know, what each individual person can do to be more prepared. And I think that's where someone like yourself and, and the people like you uh, who are having these conversations and trying to help people do live right as like, cause like you said, it's two people getting diagnosed. It's the, it's, it's the person who has the disease plus the person who's taking care of them. Um, so, I mean, there is a huge need for real life education and, and instruction on this. Absolutely. I read the obituaries and as strange as that may sound, I still live in a small community, even as Columbia has grown. And I look at the obituaries um, and uh, jot a note down if so-and-so's father or mother, just someone that I've known I want to send a card, but what it distresses me is when I read that someone died and Alzheimer's is listed or the donations for the family memorial go to an, an, an Alzheimer's association. I'm like, I don't expect to know everyone in this big community and then the surrounding rural area, but it means that we weren't there for them, that we didn't have them in the groups they needed to be. We weren't helping them. And if we're only reaching, unfortunately, three to 5% of the population, we're not doing enough. We need to be reaching the 100% of the population and to educate people. And then to go back the other way, we need to talk to them about the risk factors that are involved. Um, There are risk factors. There's no one single thing that's going to cause a person to have 
um, a dementia disease, but there are risk factors that we can mitigate and mitigating risk factors. Hey, isn't that kind of what life is about? Right. Yeah. Mitigating those risk sure, factors. Sure. Right. So what are those risks? And, and as a pharmacist, well, as a pharmacist, you see people and they come in and, and they may say, well, I was prescribed this medicine or I want to take this herbal supplement or I want to do this or that and the other. And you, it, with your knowledge and, and the, then the data you have available to you, you look things up and you go, ooh, well, you know, that's contraindicated. Mm-hmm. Or there are some side effects that may affect something else. If you're already having trouble um, walking and balance issues, this one is a fall risk. I'm going to, you know, want you to be very careful about it is how you look at it. We look at all the risk factors and um, other than the obvious risk factors um, that can cause brain problems, which includes uh, excessive use of alcohol or substance abuse, um, we have to look at the other things that are risk factors. And the ones that always surprise people when I talk to them about it is your hearing. It's ironic that Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of insurance only covers us from top to bottom. It doesn't care about our teeth. It doesn't care about our vision and it doesn't care about our hearing. Those are peripheral. That's not really health. But the thing is, is being able to hear means that when you're hearing, you're understanding. When you're understanding, you're processing. When you're processing, you're putting it back out or putting it effort into doing what you were hearing. But if you can't hear properly, you, then you are not processing it. So you're missing things. And in some cases, people with hearing loss tend to socially isolate. Social isolation is a risk factor. If you can't see and you don't have the insurance to get yourself proper glasses or to get cataract surgery, treat glaucoma, you're not processing the images you see. So your brain isn't working like it's supposed to. The odd one I throw in there as a risk factor is dental health. For some reason, dental care is just not important to the insurers unless they charge you extra on the side. But our dental health is so essential to our overall health. We should be making sure that from birth to death, people are taking care of their dental health because dental infections cross the blood brain barrier. That's why you take antibiotics for some people before they have these surgeries, blood brain barrier. Don't let that crap get up into your brain. Other risk factors that have come out recently, and they absolutely make sense. Air pollution, air quality, that's a risk factor. So social isolation, hearing issues, dental issues. And then the one that you and I connected on is mental health issues. In mental health, if you are isolating or you are treating your mental health other than through therapy and the other things that are shown to work and then medication as part of it, if needed, you're going to isolate or you might try to self-medicate through drug use or alcohol. And that, again, then becomes a risk factor. They all just throw themselves in. There's some other risk factors, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And two of the ones that I think affect our rural populations is um, we have certain 
communities that have a higher risk factor. Our Latino, our African-American communities have a higher risk factor, not because they are Latino or African-American, because they have less access to good health care. So it's a risk factor. And unfortunately, by virtue of my sex, I'm at a higher risk than you are because women actually are diagnosed more often than men. But we can't do anything about that one. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting, all the things that you're saying, because it's not things we consider, but they're things that like are really making sense. And um, you know, you, you list a lot of the risk factors and things that uh, I never really considered. And they say that you, um, and I'm going to use my own personal experience on this, um, with my dad and uh, my dad was a life, pretty much lifetime smoker. Um, he smoked from the age of early teens until, uh, sure. you know, I think when he was 75 ish, eight, somewhere he quit then. Um, but then also quality of his air, not just from the smoking, but my dad worked for, uh, 20 plus years in a sail barn, you know, and, Absolutely. and that was many doctors have told him and mom mm -hmm. that that was the reason that's that was one of the biggest contributors to not just his lung uh deterioration of his lung health but also to the deterioration of his brain health as well um absolutely so i mean it's it's these little things it's these things that you know sometimes like we don't if we're a lot of, I mean, and let's, let's, let's take this to the population who probably listens to this podcast and being rural Americans and, and folks who work in agriculture. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to think that yes, our air a lot of times is very healthy and it is. Um, but like we do expose ourselves to some pretty noxious chemicals as well. Um, Absolutely. You know, especially in like enclosed places like a grain bin or something like that. Uh, so, I mean, it's 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 these little things that you don't think of um you don't really think of in the grand scheme of things but you know, especially when there's many of them added up i mean it can be pretty significant absolutely let me throw one more in there for sure. you as a risk factor and a lot of people don't think about this one it's um sleep quality mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I hear people say, oh, I have insomnia or I, I don't sleep well, it used to be, well, gee, that's too bad. You perhaps want to talk to your physician about your insomnia or your uh, inability to get good quality sleep. Now I stamp my foot, put my hand on their shoulder and go, sleep quality is the number one thing you can do to improve your health, your life, and your brain health. Because the only time our brain regenerates itself is in deep REM sleep. Yes. And it needs that good quality sleep. Yes. And um, a lot of people, they just say, well, I've had insomnia forever, no big deal. Or 
my husband wakes up snoring, uh, snorting and snoring. Mm-hmm. Sleep apnea is absolutely a risk factor. Insomnia is a risk factor. We did not know that my husband had sleep apnea until after he was diagnosed because he had none of the typical symptoms, which is the quick breathing and wake up and snort, snore, roll over. He didn't have any of those. Now, uh, but he was diagnosed after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's with severe sleep apnea. And you think about that 20 plus years, his brain was not getting the restorative sleep it needed to regenerate itself, to clear out all that goo that gets into your brain. Who would have ever thought sleep was that important? Sleep is, it is one of the, it was one of the most underrated, under talked about, um, just, and, you know, what, and, you know, and to take it even further step as to how our culture is kind of, um, kind of just in totally backwards like it's almost like a badge of honor sometimes that we don't get more sleep but oh you're getting more less sleep you're getting more done and i i used to i used to think that way um but very early on in this podcast and then later on we had her again as my friend susan harris uh she works for the university of nebraska lincoln and she is kind of a sleep specialist and we have talked about the how important sleep is and how taking that time to rest and regenerate is, is way more. I mean, that is way more important. You will be way more productive and you're, you'll be healthier longer. If you do take that time and take the break and take the time to sleep, then, you know, what you would have done in that time you weren't sleeping, if that makes any sense. True. Um, it absolutely it makes, does. And I can tell you from my own experience too, because I have sleep apnea as well. I've had it forever. Um, I've had it since I was probably a teenager. Um, But I was never diagnosed until four or five, six years ago. I can't remember. And I started using CPAP at night and my overall health has just been, it's just been a phenomenal. And I mean, not just my health, but the quality of sleep that my wife gets as well. Um, yes. And the, the quality of our life together is better because she's not pissed off at me because I'm snoring as much anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. Yes. You know, I mean, it's yeah. a, and, and, and again, on this podcast, uh, one of the, the main things that we, no matter what we're talking about, no matter what aspect of health we're talking about, um, we, we try to make it apparent that health is a holistic concept and that each little thing that you may change one way or another can have a, an effect across the whole spectrum of your health. And just because you are doing this one little thing, it can make a huge world of difference. And I think sleep is one of those cornerstones of holistic health in that it affects all of our systems and all the things we do. And, um, and then, you know, to even to go down to children, the the children who are more stressed and who probably don't do as well at school are children that probably don't sleep as well. And again, I have to point to my wife being the person who has changed my point of view on this. Uh, she's been a staunch 
we sleep as much as we can type family, you know, and, and we just got all of our kids. We just got, just finished school yesterday for the year. All of our kids have nothing lower than an A minus on their report cards and have, are thri- are thriving in school. And I think it's a number of things, but I think getting adequate sleep is one of the key factors in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, um, I, and you're right about the culture. There is a culture. Well, can you multitask, Jason? Did you only sleep four hours last night? That meant you got so much more done. That's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's not a good thing for our brain. It's not a good thing for our body. It's not a good thing for the health. All that cornerstone things that they teach us, they do all work together to make it better. And um, I, I wish I had known. Could I have changed the trajectory of my husband's illness? Well, no, because I didn't know. Yeah, right. I always thought it was because he worked so hard. He did this. He was uh, always coding. He liked to code for fun. That was his idea of recreation. And uh, plus, he liked to drink beer. Well, I know alcohol interferes with your sleep, but good quality sleep really is. Yeah. If we made a, a square or a triangle, whatever of quality, that is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's shift here just, just for a bit. And I I, want to kind of talk about one of the things that you mentioned, we've talked about, just hit on just a little bit is uh, the effect of the caregiver and of um, the other, uh, the, the, the people surrounding the dementia patients. And, you know, how they're affected, you know, what kind of toll that takes on them, and what resources and what things they, what little things they can do to improve their, the experience. Because, I mean, they're, they're going to go through it, right? That's unavoidable. And I think one of the things that, we try to do in this life is even make the hard things uh, more sustainable, more doable. So I think it's, I think that's a very important thing for people to hopefully uh, understand. Absolutely. That's, that's my philosophy. If I, we, whomever can help the caregiver then the caregiver can do what they need to do to care for the person with dementia disease. Mm -hmm. But we have to keep the caregiver healthy. We have to give them the resources that they need, um, the education that they need. If they have the tools in place to learn, to find the resources they need, the legal help, excuse me, the medical health, the teamwork, all of the things surrounding them, if they have that, it benefits the person with the dementia disease. One program that I'm working with is, um, it's a sleep study through the University of Missouri. And it is literally for the caregiver of the person with dementia disease. So it's a sleep study, it's called Nightcap. And what we're doing is we're trying to work with caregivers across the state. So 
in, in rural areas, because if we can help them have better quality sleep through uh, cognitive behavioral feedback, just on a cell phone, they're going to take better care of their loved one. And mm -hmm. they're going to take better care of the other people in the family. You touched on this. And, and I think it's very important in the same way that alcoholism, for example, affects not just the person with alcoholism, it affects their family, their circle, their loved ones, their friends, their employers. It's ongoing ripples. In the same way, dementia disease affects people around them. We have people who are caregivers for a loved one with dementia who have young children at home or have teenagers at home or have mm -hmm. young adults in college or even um, grown adults who may have grandchildren. And how are they going to understand the caregiver responsibility is huge. We work to educate the caregiver. And we also do what I call crisis management. And I want, I tell them, you may never need the information I give you and share with you. But if you do, you have it. Let's not respond to a crisis if we have the tools to not even let it be a crisis or when the crisis comes, we know how to deal with it. And that's a big spectrum of education that we do for the caregiver. So we always invite the families in. I have a group, a family group, that at one point I had the spouse, a grown daughter, and a grown son all participating in the support group so that the grown daughter and son could provide backup and to the spouse caregiver and to reiterate or to reinforce what they needed to do. The more we educate outside of the caregiver with all of the family and then the friends, or as you said, you said, reach out to people who can help you. You said a friend, a pastor, someone like that. We mm -hmm. reach out to those people too and educate them on what they need to do to help the caregiver who then can better care for the person who needs the care. I think that philosophy probably applies to any caregiving. Sure. But yeah, it, I agree. That, yeah, that, I agree. That focus is to give them the tools that they need. Hi, I'm giving you all these tools. You're going to have a really well-stocked tool belt and toolbox and pull them out when you need them. And if you never need them, get rid of them after the journey ends. But I want to make sure you had the tools to work with, to know what's happening. And is there any data or personal, like anecdotal evidence that you have into where a, you know, where a caregiver has the, the, the strength of the caregiver has improved the outcomes of the, of the person diagnosed? Well, in view of the fact that the diagnosis of dementia disease, it is always fatal. It, sure. it, it, right. is, it has improved the care that they received. It has improved um, the quality of their lives. And what we try to tell caregivers is we can't always make our loved one happy. We can't always make sure 
of other things because of what the disease does to them. But the focus is make sure that they're safe and that they have what they need. When we know that they're safe, meaning not able to wander, that they have the medications they need if they're having hallucinations um, or delusions, not delirium, that's a little different. They're having mm-hmm. those. Then, um, and that they have, you know, the nutrition that their body can absorb. They have all of those things. Then Mm -hmm. we are doing a good job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do the education. I will throw this in there though, because one in six Americans over the age of 65 will have a dementia disease. You could roughly translate that one in six spouses will be taking care of a person or an adult child will be taking whoever we're taking care of. And often the load of caregiving on a person, even when they're healthy is so much that sometimes caregivers die or get a medical problem that disables them before the person with dementia. Um, There's the really famous one. Um, He's famous because he was so outspoken and articulate, but his name is Rick Phelps. And he started a group called Memory People. And he wrote with help from someone about how he depended on his wife, how she was his anchor, his cornerstone. And I read recently that she died. He's still living in late stages of dementia. But uh, was it caregiving that took her away? I don't know. But that is what happens sometimes because the stress level is so intense. 24-hour care, it's just so hard. So that's why we want to educate not just the caregiver, whomever they are. We want to educate the circle and the community and the team that surrounds them And kudos to you and your profession, because when I talk about the team, I always bring up the dentist, the pharmacist, and the ophthalmologist, in addition to the primary care physician, and then the specialist, who in many cases is the neurologist. Those people are part of that whole circle of caregiving, and we need them, and they help us. Every little bit helps. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, let's say that, well, just take for me, for example, as a pharmacist, if I get just a little bit more educated on dementia and that in turn, I can give that help to anybody I interact with professional or, or, or non-professional, um, and then the effect that that can have on those people. And it just, it, 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 can, it doesn't take much you know, thought or imagination to see how quickly the difference can be made just from one person taking the initiative to um, become better educated on something like this. And, uh, you know, it could, because when we start talking about these things, they seem so big right and i'm not just talking about dementia just any um any issue that is facing any population they seem so big but in, if we if we break it down into its smallest parts and if we could look at the little things we can do and how big of a change we can make just by doing the little things you know, imagine if everybody thought that way and did their little part on that i mean it would have a almost i mean almost instantaneous 
type of reaction or in type of improvement and growth in this, uh, in these types of spaces. And I think that's, what's really, I think that's really important. And, and again, I, I, I talk about this book as often as I can, because it, it helped me see the world in this way. And it's a book called the atomic habits by James clear. And he talks about these things where we're able to do those little bitty, tiny things, um, to tackle monumental type problems, you know, and the only way to do it is do it one little bit at a time. And I think that's, you know, people get so overwhelmed by these things. Um, you know, dementia is a huge thing that is affecting so many people. And we think what difference could just one person have, but then you, then you stop and think like, well, man, what a difference one person can make, you know? And yeah, who was it? Margaret Mead that said that one person, one small change. And I call it the ripple effect. As a country girl who used to live out near creeks and streams and things, I call it the ripple effect. You skip a rock on the water or you throw a rock in the water. That ripple, one ripple. So can I tell you a story, quick story about the ripple effect? Please do. I'd love to teach, um, mm-hmm. possibly should have been a teacher. I don't mm-hmm. know, but I'd love to teach. So I've been Zoom teaching to the Camden, uh, Camdenton, Camden County uh, Vocational Technical School area. And they have a wonderful instructor, an RN, who teaches their CNA program, Certified Nurse Assistant. CNAs are the backbone the everything of hospitals and care homes and memory care, uh, certified nursing assistants. They're out there on the front lines all the time. So we started a program with them and we taught four classes at four different uh, areas to these students. It took me a couple hours every time And the teacher made the effort, the students were involved, then they're going to graduate. Some of them already have, they have CNA jobs. Jason, they're going out there with more education about dementia disease than any class before them. I went down to an event with them. It was a community forum. They were all there. And I just looked at those students and I thought, This is why we do what we do. This will make a difference. I might not see it, but the people in the care homes in those rural communities or the people in the hospitals, they'll get the benefit of that effort, of that ripple, of that tiny little change that we made happen. And I'm like, not that I'm going to stop now, but it just, it still gives me chills because That's where it makes a difference, that education that we give to people. They're going to go out and educate and educate and educate. And it makes such a difference. I just getting chills. (laughs) No, I mean, no, it does. It makes such a big difference. And, you know, and we we have to realize that we have to realize that. I, I mean, sometimes it seems like efforts can be made in vain. Um but I rarely think that's the case. I mean, yeah. we, 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 we have to, you know, we have to do the things like you're doing, going out and, and, and sharing our knowledge with people on whatever sure. that may, be, you know, um, 
because the world needs it. The world needs your perspective because. Absolutely. They didn't need for you to speak about mental health and farming, but they did need it. You know, you put yourself out there. You put yourself out there to people. And there are those who will make comments and I don't care. And the same Mm -hmm. thing with me. I will go out there and make those comments and make that education happen and educate people about dementia disease because those of us who open our mouths and put ourselves forward and we advocate and educate and when we have to we agitate we can make those little tiny ripple changes that we need to make i mean look at how you and i connected because you spoke and because you were written about and i went dang, this is great because mental health and health, all of our health matters. So we're making the ripples happen. Let's throw some more rocks, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that's that, that kind of thing. What you just said right there is the reason why I keep this podcast up and going, even when it's hard, right? I just got out one of the busiest seasons of my life with my kids in baseball. You know, you were privy mm-hmm. to that. You know, you, we connected during that season. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was, it, it was literally like all I, and I talked about it on my podcast this week. Like I literally didn't have it in me to record a podcast or, um, over the weekend, um, but I did do it Monday night. But, but, but like, so sometimes it is, it is really hard for me to, to get out and do these things, but these kind of conversations right here is why I do it and why I keep doing it because who knows what's going to come of you and I having this conversation because lots and lots of people have connected through not just my podcast, but other podcasts and other um, platforms and what would the world look like without those connections? I don't know, you know? So, I mean, that's why I keep doing it to be to, for the potential, um, potential results of that, that may come from interaction. Absolutely. And um, I, I, I look back, I, I knew, a, know a couple who's uh, they were fairly well-known and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, um, mm. which also can, it's a neurological issue and it can lead unfortunately to other problems, Parkinson's dementia. Um, and um, she said, I don't want my husband to turn into the poster child for Parkinson's. And for a moment I was taken aback and I went, it's okay. She wants to keep it within her family and it is a private battle and they're going to do what they need to do. I'm sad because their voices could have made a difference, but I'm not going to judge her because she has to do what's best for her and her family. But um, getting out and raising your voice up, making people understand and, and showing them a face and a voice or hearing a voice to an issue makes people not afraid to talk about it because when this one Mm. gentleman came into a breakfast club that we did for 
people with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers. He didn't want to come. He was like, I don't want to go hang out with these people. And he walked in, he looked around and he goes, they're just like me. These are just people. Yeah. Hey, we're just people. We just won the lottery in a different way. And now we're trying to make changes so that maybe your kids or my other family members don't have to go or they have the tools that they need to do that. Yeah. There's a quote and I've got to find it here. And I've, I've, I've said it on the pot. Here it is. I had to, excuse me, as I looked, as I looked for it through here um, and it says when, and this can be applied to again, anything, when we recover loudly, we keep others from dying quietly. Absolutely. So whenever we, and that's that again is why I do what I do, even when it's uncomfortable, even when things You're tired. are tired. Yeah. Because. And it's I, emotional. Yeah. I want to, I, I want to, Yes. And I think that needs to be acknowledged that what you do for you and in your podcast and your work, it isn't easy. It is taxing. It does pull from our emotional reserves. Mm-hmm. And I had a professor who was a speaker after me on a lecture I was doing for a nursing school. He said, how do you do it? How do you relive these things? And I said, because my husband was never quiet about it. He put himself out there and I put myself out there and I can look back on the five years and know there are people for whom it has made a difference and it is emotionally wearing and taxing, but it's worth every minute and I'll go have a glass of wine when we're done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Amelia, I, I really appreciate your time here tonight and I appreciate the chance that we have gotten to connect. Um, if people want to reach out to you after hearing this podcast and share or you know, ask you questions, share experiences with you, how can they do that? My email, which is really a great way to get me is a-M-E-L-I-A-C-O-T-T-L-E at gmail.com. And with that, you can reach me, um, connect with me. I will call you. I will text you. I will send you resources. I'll visit. Um, really no restrictions on that. Um, I'm happy to help. My phone is always um, available. Um, but if you want to, you know, start a connection, let's do it through the email. Um, and, um, if, if, uh, people want to call or text me five, seven, three, eight, zero, eight, four, nine, seven, two. And then I've had a lot of people reach me through the ALZ.org website. The Alzheimer's association was there for us the day my husband was diagnosed. We literally knocked on their door and they were there with us. They held our hands, patted our shoulders and held us up. And so I work with them as a volunteer and um, I, that's, I do it for Brian Mm -hmm. and for all the other amazing, amazing people that I've met and lost through this, through this disease. 
And then the cool people that I've met and will stay connected with. Your article and your work with rural health really made me expand my rural knowledge and, and and to push back out and the Missouri Rural Health Association and all those groups. I mean, just thinking about that's where I came from. Farm girl. And um, we're out there and we need to be helping our, our rural people um, with everything. That's the difficult part of their lives to go with a really cool persimmons and mulberries and hang and birds and great part of rural living. Sure. 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 Well, I, I really appreciate you and I appreciate your kind words and, um, and let's again, let's keep this line of connection open. Um, Absolutely. And you know, we'll we'll hook back up sometime in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. You keep doing what you do. Get some sleep. Enjoy the summer with the kids. I love it. I will. I will. Take care. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.